We're going to come back and worship and sing a little bit more later. Um, but I just kind of want to um, talk to you really and share with you. We, we're in this uh, series that we've uh, launched at the start of this year called New Year Revolution. And um, 31 days we've said to shape your life. And we've been talking about virtues or principles or values that if we live out these things, they will shape our life. They're not just going to be resolutions at the start of a year. These are going to cause a revolution in the way in which we live our life. And it's all based on one verse that I believe God has given me for us for the whole year, which I've never had before. This is like a watchword verse for the year. It's going to come up on the screen. And you know the drill by now if you've been here the last couple of weeks. We're going to read this verse out together. Is that all right? In fact, what I'm really tempted to do next week, this is a bit like the kids' memory verses, is to take some of the verses out, take some of the words out, do you know what I mean? And see if you should know it by now, hopefully. So let's give it a go anyway. Here we go. Let's read together. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. So week one we did like an overview. Last week in week two we looked at that first phrase, sow for yourselves righteousness. And we looked at what it means to sow seeds, especially in the workplace, but also into the lives of those who don't yet know God. How many of you have been sowing this last week? Hopefully you have, because that's what it was all about. And also, uh, a week last Tuesday at our Encounter Worship event, uh, I gave you some bulbs which you held and you thought about someone who doesn't yet know God, and you prayed for that person, and you planted them into the soil, and look, they are growing. If You might not be able to see it from where you are, but the bulbs you placed about, I don't know, 120 bulbs in there, and some of them are starting to grow, which is amazing, because there's no natural sunlight here. But they are growing through the faithful attendance of one man. Every morning before work, Daniel Bennett, our associate pastor, has been coming in with his little watering can and he's been watering these bowls. Not only has he been watering them patiently, he's been speaking to them lovingly. I kid you not. He's been speak- I think he's named all of them in here. It's been a beautiful thing just to watch that ongoing relationship develop. And there's life coming from it, which is amazing. Sow for yourselves righteousness. But now we're going to look at the next phrase, reap the fruit of unfailing love. And I've entitled this, Everybody in Love, Put Your Hands Up. Now, if you don't know what there's a reference to, that's a song by JLS. If you don't know who they are, that's a boy band, okay? Now, I have said, I might even sing it this morning. My wife and my teenage son have threatened me with painful things that will come my way if I sing, Everybody in Love, going to put your hands up. So I'm not going to do it, okay? I'm not going to do it. Because she's on the front row and she's going like that, all right? And she's going, and and even worse than that, the very slow, icy stare, the very, like, you know the one. So, anyone in love, put your hands up. Anybody in love with God, put your hands up. And thinking about this whole phrase, reap the fruit of unfailing love. In the Good News version of, of the Bible, They translate it this, reap the blessings that your devotion to me will produce. The New Living Version says, gather the fruit of lasting love. To understand this verse, I want to use an illustration that Janet used a few years ago. And it comes from a book that we both read. And here's the picture of a daisy petal. And you may remember when you were a kid, if you're a little bit old like me, uh, playing a game with a daisy petal. He loves me, he loves me not. Anyone done that? You know, the whole kind of thing. You pick a petal off, he loves me, he loves me not. That's kind of how we can approach our relationship with God, if I'm honest. Let me give you an example. I've got a pay rise. He loves me. 
I didn't get that promotion. He loves me not. God spoke to me today. He loves me. My child got sick. He loves me not. I look great in this new outfit. He loves me. My bum looks big in anything. He loves me not. Something I prayed for actually happened. He loves me. Something I've been praying for for years has still not happened. It must mean he loves me not. And you know, we we can approach our relationship with God just like that. It's like a tightrope. And we live and we move and we have our being on this tightrope. And we're not sure whether God loves us because it's all based on circumstances. And if you live like that, folks, you're never going to reap the fruit of unfailing love. You're never going to do it. You see... This phrase really means, it's nothing about what you actually do. It's about how you live your life so plugged in to the love of God that you're going to reap the fruit of His unfailing love, not yours. You're going to reap the fruit of His unfailing love. You're going to live in such a way that actually you can't help but be fruitful. And you may not reap a pay rise. And you may not reap a new house. And you may not reap answers to all of your prayers in the way that you want but you will reap the fruit of his unfailing love you will know the radical passionate all-embracing all-consuming dynamic never-ending love of God I want that don't you can we live in such a way that we're so plugged into the unfailing love of God that no matter what happens around us no matter what is shaken that is never shaken The word unfailing love in the original language, in the Hebrew language, is is the word hasid, which is a really difficult word to translate. The New Testament version, the Greek version, is the word agape or agape. Again, very difficult to translate. Our best attempt at translating those words is the word grace. It's like this ultimate, supreme level of love. Unconditional, no strings attached, sacrificial, devoted love. That's the kind of love that God loves us with. But our love, folks, our love is always, always conditional. So this couple break up. This is an old illustration. So she writes to him, but imagine that she texts him. And she says, Jimmy, Jimmy, I'm really gutted that we've broken up. I'm so sad. Please take me back. You are the only man for me. I love you. I love you. I love you so very much. Please, please, please take me back. Yours, Marie. P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. You see, with our love, there are always strings attached. But in the book of Hosea, um, the prophet there, Hosea, gives us two pictures that describe the way that God loves us. One is a parent and a child, and one is a husband and a wife. And so in Hosea chapter 11, you read this. When Israel was a child, says God, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. And he, he describes it, he says, I loved Israel like a parent loves a child. The more I did for them, the more they seemed to move away. The more they, they, they went to other gods and the more they kicked it back at me, what I'd given them. But then it says in verse 8, but how can I give you up? How can I ever give you up? You know, no matter how you treat me, God says, I'm still your dad. No matter how you treat me, I'm still your dad and I could never ever give you up. And then in, in the first, in the beginning of Hosea, there's, there's actually a story there about Hosea himself and how God comes to Hosea in chapter 1 and verse 2 and says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, and imagine if you heard this, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. And what that really means is a prostitute and, and someone who has kids from different men. You go and take her as your wife. And that happens, and then she goes off again, 
And then in chapter 3, the Lord said to me, says Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is now loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And you can imagine the prophet walking through the streets and everybody nudging each other saying, he's going back to her again. It's crazy. She keeps letting him down. She keeps going off with other men and he keeps going back. And he says he's a prophet of God. And then Hosea does that as a prophetic symbolic act because that's how God views us. That even though we go off with, if you like, other men and we turn our backs on him, he never lets us go. Isn't that amazing? And these two startling pictures describe something of the unfailing love of God. One of my uh, favourite writers, Brennan Manning, not Bernard Manning, that's a whole different thing. But Brennan Manning, he says this, If we take all the goodness, wisdom and compassion of the best mothers and fathers who've ever lived, they would only be a faint shadow of the love and mercy in the heart of the redeeming God. I don't know whether you've heard this before, I don't know everybody here this morning, but I want you to know, God loves you with an unfailing love. If you imagine the best love of earthly parents to their kids and the best love of a husband to a wife and and all of that, it's nothing compared to the passionate, embracing, unfailing love that the Father has for you. And God's goal for you this year and me this year and every year is that we would live in such relationship with Him that we would know what it is to live in unfailing love. And if we do that, we will reap incredible fruit. But you know, there are some barriers to living in this unfailing love, which I want to just touch briefly upon. The first one is guilt. How many of you know that the power of motivation is a really important thing? That's why some people are paid thousands to be motivational speakers, okay? And to try and find ways to motivate you to do something. A couple of weeks ago, uh, somebody said to me in church, "Um, can I come and see you this week? Because I have a picture for you. So I thought, yeah, that's fine. So we arranged to meet up for coffee. And in my mind, I thought they meant a picture, okay? And in our expression of church, I thought that was a spiritual thing. So I was all geared up for them coming. And something like, as Jeff Lucas, the author and speaker, says, I was expecting something like, I have this picture for you. I see this uh, yellow octopus dancing on a tin of ambrosia cream rice, whistling Yankee Doodle Dandy. Does that mean anything to you? I was geared up for that kind of picture, but when we had coffee, what, the kind of picture that he gave me wasn't a picture like that at all. It was a picture. It was a real picture. And this is the picture he gave me. And if you can't see it from there, this is our under-14 football team who five years ago won the cup. I was the manager of this team and I've never seen this picture. So you'll see people like Simon Bradley, my own son Josh there, Tom Gregory over here looking like his dad, actually, there. That's quite scary for him. <laughs> Josh Harris, uh, Alex, all kinds of guys who are now 18, 19, but then were 13 and 14. And he came and gave me this picture because it was hanging up in his office. And he gave it to me, which is great. And it took me back to the night when I managed this successful cup-winning team. Now, I have to tell you, the season we'd had was awful. We got battered week in, week out. Sometimes we were lucky to get nil. All right? That's how bad, that's how bad it was. And when it came to the cup final, all right, the kids, the lads were so excited because we were playing at Cradley Town, so we had dressing rooms, uh, kind of, all right, and, and, and so the kids were there, they were, in, they were in their kit, they were so pumped up, they, I don't know how they did it, but they got to the final, and they were there at the final. They're waiting then for their manager to come in and do the motivational talk, and to my shame, Because we were playing a team that had battered us every single time we played them all through the season. It was supposed to be under 14s. All these guys had beards. 
All right, they all had beards. Honestly, like they were scaring me, okay? They looked bigger than me. And I thought, so I walked in, and to my shame, my motivational talk that night was this. They were all excited. They looked at me as their manager. What are you going to say? And I said, oh, I can't believe I did this. You've got no chance. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you're going to get battered. So just enjoy it and put it down to experience. <laughs> and we won. <laughs> and they've never let me forgotten that. And I hung up my managerial uh, football career on that night. But it kind of reminded me a little bit about, <laughs> oh, it's shameful, isn't it? The power of motivation. And when it comes to your relationship with God, when it comes to your relationship with God, guilt is never a good way to be motivated. And the reality is many, many Christians are motivated in their relationship with God by guilt. Wayne Jacobson, in, in the book, He Loves Me, which is a great book. If ever you want to read it, it's a brilliant book. And he talks about the tyranny of the favour line. It's like this imaginary favour line, which you have to hit in order to earn approval. And so we come to God and we have this imaginary favour line. And the problem is with that, if you're just under it, then you, you live in self-pity. I'm never good enough. If you're just over it, you live in self-righteousness. What a great Christian am I. I read my Bible every day. I'm disciplined. I'm ordered. What a fa- Self-righteousness. Tyranny of the favour line. And the reality is there is no favour line. You know, we're trying to keep score with someone, we're trying to earn points rather with someone who's not keeping score. There is no favour line. You know, there is nothing that you and I could do to make God love us anymore. And there's nothing we could do to make him love us any less. So if this morning you have guilt, drop it. It's time to let it go. It's time to step out of that guilt. I love that story of, of, of Peter when, when, you know, when he denies Jesus three times and he fails and he messes up. And, you know, and then um, Jesus is crucified and buried and Peter goes back to fishing and just incredible guilt. Jesus is resurrected and comes again to him at the lakeside and makes breakfast for him. He doesn't then say, right, here's the line, Peter. You know, you didn't reach the line. Look how far you've fallen short. There's no line. The only thing he says to him is this. Do you love me? If you love me, that's all you need. I love that. Isn't that amazing? Some of us need to hear it today. You know, you feel guilty over what you've done or what you've not done. You feel guilty over what you're doing now or not doing. You feel guilty when you look at other people. And can I say, we always judge our insides by other people's outsides. Do you know that? So we always tend to think, look how good they're doing on the outside. And then we look at our insides. It's a really bad thing to do, to judge your inside by somebody else's outside. And if you're feeling guilty, I want you to know God loves you with an unfailing love. Guilt should not stop you from coming to him. But the second thing is shame. Shame is a little bit different from guilt. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Shame is an incredibly powerful thing. I haven't got the time this morning, but it's like that sense of not only have I done things that God wouldn't want me to do, but I am something. I am something that God wouldn't want me, just wouldn't want me to be. And shame is incredibly debilitating when it comes to knowing his unfailing love. But the third barrier, so one I want to talk about, and it kind of keys into what Marcus said, is the word fear. And I want to push this book for you. This is our book of the month book that I've read called Fearless by Max Lucado. It's a great book. It's really easy to read. It's really short chapters. And I think at the start of this year, and Mark is so right, there is an incredible shaking going on all over the world. We need to understand how to engage with fear. 
And in this book, he talks about all kinds of things. Like he talks about fear of not mattering, fear of disappointing God, fear of um, not protecting your kids, fear of challenges, fear of violence, fear of the coming winter, fear of what's next, fear that God isn't real. Brilliant things. I really encourage you. You can get it in the coffee shop. If we haven't got enough there, we'll order it and get it in for you for next week. It's a brilliant book. And um, fear. (laughs) We fear the unknown. We fear being unknown. We fear not having enough. We fear losing what we have. We fear we'll never find the right person to marry. We fear losing the person we have married. We fear for our children's safety. We fear what others think of us. We fear they won't. We fear crying. We fear losing a loved one. We fear authority. We fear that we won't get things we desire the most. We fear rejection. We fear failure. We fear being alone. We fear losing our jobs. We fear people finding out we're not all we claim to be. We fear not fitting in. We fear death. The list goes on, doesn't it? We are incredibly fear-filled people. What about if faith and not fear was our default reaction to life? Wouldn't that be amazing? Could you imagine that? If rather than you know, that, the whole mantra, why pray when we can panic, how about if when fear came knocking on our door, our default reaction was not to let the fear in, but to let faith in? Could you imagine a whole life free of fear? That seems a bit unrealistic. Okay, could you imagine a day when you don't fear? That'd be a massive challenge for many of us, wouldn't it? When something happens and our reaction is not to fear, but it's to say, do you know what? I am grafted in. I am in the fruit. I'm going to reap the fruit of unfailing love. You see, the Bible says perfect love drives out all fear. It says that in... Um, in 1 John 4 verse 8, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. And those five words are really important to us. Perfect love drives out fear. Why don't we say that together? Perfect love drives out fear. One more time. Perfect love drives out fear. I want you to say it because sometimes this week, sometime this week, you're going to hit a situation when fear will come flooding in. And I want you to know, perfect love drives out fear. What a brilliant reaction. And so we're going to look at this in action this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to Matthew 8, because I do believe that fear is the biggest barrier that stops us from engaging with the unfailing love of God. It stops us knowing His love in our lives. And we're going to read this story together, well-known story, Matthew 8, verse 23. Then he got into the boat and the disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? What a stupid question, Jesus. Like we're afraid because we're fishermen and we know storms and we're in a mother of all storms now and we are going to die and you say, why are you afraid? How insensitive. (laughs) Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Before we move on, it would be remiss of me with a picture up like that of a boat in a storm for us not to pause and pray for the cruise liner situation in Italy. So could you just bow your heads and we're going to do that right now. Father, we want to pray, God, that we've got this picture in front of us and we're about to look at a story of when you calmed a storm. For people who were in fear of their lives at sea, Lord, we bring this situation in Italy to you. 
God, for every person that's lost their life, we pray for their families, for those who are yet to be found. We pray for the emergency services that they would find their bodies. We would find, hopefully, Lord, that there would be survivors as well. God, that would be awesome. Lord, I want to pray for every person that's been affected by that tragedy. And Lord, I also pray for the captain. Regardless of what he's done or not done, regardless of what will happen to him, he's a human being. And I want to pray for him as well. And I want to pray for every single family who's been affected by this tragedy. Let your peace and your presence somehow enter into their lives in this awful time, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's... um, the word that's used here is a, when it says a furious storm and it's kind of without warning it says that this storm comes in fear. And I was thinking of a, when, when have I been in a situation like that and I couldn't think of one at sea. But a few years ago and, um, I was in South Africa with a whole group of leaders and we were there at a conference with Hands at Work and we were in the conference and we were in communities and etc. You know the work we're doing. And we had one day off, only one day off when we did this, alright? So I just want to give that the background for those of you thinking, oh yeah, that's all he does. We had one day off and and where we, were, where we were based was right next to Kruger National Park, okay, safari kind of land. Not like Safari Park, Budley, all right? This is Kruger National Park. It's as big as Wales, all right? It is the wild. And so there's four of us, and we're in this, we're in this car, and Lee was one of them, and two fr- leaders from another church. And we were in this car, and we were driving through all that, and it was brilliant. And we had music on, and we were chatting, and we were laughing, and we were looking at animals, and it was all great. And it was so, like, it was so calm. It was so peaceful. It was fantastic. You don't hear traffic. It's just beautiful. And then we found this herd of elephants, and we started to kind of track this herd of elephants, like in the, in the car, obviously. And we started to track, and we were still chatting and music going on, and everything was great. And as we came around this bend, we realized that we were in the middle of a pack of elephants, a herd of elephants, because the, the lot were here, and we somehow had got ourselves in between the two groups of the herd of elephants. And the bull elephant turned and looked at us. And as it looked at us, its ears started to flap, and then it started to go like that with one of its front legs. Now, I'm really clever. And I realised, okay, because I've watched these nature programs, that elephant is not happy with us. <laughs> and I, and I ain't, I'm not kidding you, this is not a preacher exaggerated story. It charged, and loads of these elephants charged at us. I tell you, the music stopped in that car. <laughs> the chat stopped, the laughter stopped, I banged it in reverse put my foot right down and we got out of there as quick as we could. And it was amazing just how different everything was when fear came. And these disciples in this boat, you can just imagine them, can't you? You know, chatting and singing or whatever and everything's fine. Then all of a sudden, without warning, a furious storm comes up. And the word there that's used in the original is the word seismos, where we get seismology from, the study of earthquakes. It's a word that's only used three times in the New Testament here. And the other two times are when Jesus dies on Calvary and the earth shakes... And when Jesus is resurrected and the earth shakes. Isn't that amazing? The three times this word is used is when Jesus defeats sin on the cross, when Jesus defeats death at the tomb, and when Jesus defeats fear in the boat. That's amazing. It's so important to God that we get to grips with fear because fear stops us loving God. Fear stops us enjoying God and fear chokes the life out of us. Without warning... You know, some storms are gradual in our lives. Some storms are without warning. Some of you in this room, you know what it is to have a knock on your door and say, and the boss say, can you come into my office? And without warning, you've lost your job. Some of you know what it is to knock on the doctor's door and go and see him. And without warning, he says, you need to come back for tests. Something's wrong. You know what it is in your married life. Without warning, something's happened. Some of you know that. It is incredibly difficult. Without warning. 
And it's strange because Christ was in the boat. And you tend to think, well, if Christ is in the boat and I'm following Christ, surely it should be like tropical weather, calm seas, cocktails on the deck. That's what we should get, rainbows in the sky. See, some people think that following Christ means you'll always have peace. That's wrong. Sometimes following Christ means you'll always have storms. But you see, it's not the absence of the storms that sets us apart. It's the presence of the unfazed, unruffled Christ. Isn't it? It's not the absence of storms. It's the presence of Christ. Our default reaction to storms is fear. And in Mark's version of this story, one of the disciples says, Don't you care if we drown? Anyone ever said that to God? God, don't you care that I've lost my job? God, don't you care that this is happening to me? Don't you care if we drown? Let me say what I think fear is. Fear at its core is a perceived loss of control. And when we perceive that we've lost our control, we will tend to then try and over-control. So they say, come on Jesus, fix it, fix it, sort it. A loss of control. Fear releases the worst of what is inside of us. I am at my worst when I'm fearful or stressed. Anyone else identify with that? Somehow it can release the worst from within us. Fear deadens our ability to recall. See, just before this story, the disciples saw Jesus do miraculous things, amazing things over creation. And yet when you're in the middle of a storm, you can't remember any of that. It it, it deadens your ability to recall. Fear feels dreadful and it sucks the life out of us. Safety becomes our God and we worship the risk-free life. You know, there are 125 imperatives in the Gospels. An imperative is like a command. But Jesus says 125 times, tells us to do something. 21 of those, 21 of those are to do with fear. More than any other. So more than any other, Jesus tells us not to fear. Don't be afraid. Take courage, your sins are forgiven. Do not worry about your everyday life. Take courage, I am here. Do not fear those who kill your body but cannot kill your soul. Do not fear, little flock. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why are you so frightened? Arise, do not be afraid. It goes on and on and on. And I want to say this morning, in the next five minutes that I've got before we do something else, the antidote to fear, shame and guilt is to live in the fruit of God's unfailing love. I want to invite you this morning. Everyone, I don't know who you are. Some of you, you may not yet be a Christian. You'd say, I'm not a Christian. Perhaps you used to follow Christ and you don't now. Perhaps you're just exploring it. Perhaps you've just become a Christian. Perhaps you've been a Christian for years. I want to invite every one of you to enter in again into a relationship with the unfailing love of God. He loves you. Some of you are heartbroken over things that happen in your life. Some of you are confused. You know, Janet, she said today, she stepped out of something she knew. She's in the great unknown. She doesn't know what's happening. Whoever you are this morning, I want to invite you to enter again into a relationship with the unfailing love of God. Three things you're going to need to do. Number one, we need to revise our understanding of who God is. You know, I'm so glad that we're running the Alpha course here this week. And it started on Monday and there's 25 or so people. And I, I think by all accounts, they had a great time. And it was great for people to be able to open up their questions about who God is. And if you'd like to come on that Alpha course, you can come or you can bring someone tomorrow night, 7.30, in the community zone. It's not too late to do that tomorrow. Perhaps after tomorrow, it will be too late for this course. But I just want to encourage you to do that. But it's a great opportunity because, you see, we have some issues when it comes to understanding who God is. First issue is our psychology. We've been badly hurt. See, if you've been badly hurt by a parent or by an authority figure or by church, 
then your understanding of God can be defect. It can be distorted. It's a psychology issue. We've been badly hurt. But also, some of us have a theology issue. We've been badly taught. We see God more as a lawyer than as a lover. And so when in Luke 15, story of the prodigal son, Jesus talks about the kind of father there. And, and that's a revelation, an expression of who God is. Jesus, and everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said was an expression of what the father's like. So if you've been brought up in an environment or you thought in your head that God is a killjoy and God is legalistic and God is harsh and God is authoritarian, that's not God. Because everything Jesus said or did is an expression of what the Father's like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, Jesus threw parties. Jesus had fun. Jesus had laughter. Jesus was about embrace, not exclusion. Jesus was about including people. Jesus was about love and grace, not law and rules. And we need to revise our understanding of God. Augustine, who was a, I know what we call church fathers, one of a guy that lived hundreds of years ago, he said this, God loves each of us as if there's only one of us. And I was reading really over this again yesterday and I was just moved again. The simplicity of that in my own life says, God loves each of us as if there's only one of us. I guarantee there will be some of you here and you'll say, that's great that God loves us. Great for them. God loves each of us as if there's only one of us. Secondly, we need to build a strong identity in Christ. Again, another course we run here, Freedom in Christ, is so good to help you build a strong identity in Christ. The devil is into identity theft, but we need to know who we are. I am a child of God. I am a friend of God. I'm an heir of God. I'm a co-heir with Christ. And thirdly and finally, we need to experience the Father's embrace. And this is where it gets a little bit weird or a little bit different or a little bit mysterious. We need to experience the Father's embrace. You see, if you've had a negative experience, you can't replace it with logic alone. A truth encounter is not enough. We need a power encounter. You know, to understand that God loves you is great, but to experience it is really important as well. And we need the two. Now, there's a mystery about this. Let me explain. Some people experience this gradually over a period of time. For others, it's like a flash flood. They just bang, they get it. God loves them and it's like a power encounter straight away. Neither are right or wrong. They're just different. Suddenly or gradually. Great. Some experience it having sought it. Some experience it having not sought it at all. Some people experience it in a mediated way. In other words, somebody else is there praying for them, helping them. Some experience it when there's nobody in the room but them and God. The important thing is not how we experience it, but that we do. That we experience the embrace of the Father. Brennan Manning again says, You will trust God only as much as you love Him. And you will love Him not because you've studied Him. You will love Him because you have touched Him in response to his touch. I want to finish before we sing again with telling you a story that I've told some of you before. But a year last October, um, I went to America for three weeks, an extended break, which the elders kindly gave me. And I went with a friend of mine who's another church leader. He was on a three-month sabbatical. And we went to America. And uh, in that three weeks, we went to conferences and we went to churches and we did a lot of other fun stuff as well. Uh, And... When I was there, I was going there for a number of reasons. It had been just over a year since my father had died. 
It had been just a few months since Simeon, our eldest, our youngest son, had been had to be put into residential care because of his complex disability and special needs. And I was still trying to come to terms with both those things. It was also ten years that the month before September that I'd been leading this church. And so I was asking all kinds of questions. And if I'm really honest, I wasn't in a particularly great place spiritually. I didn't feel close to the father. I'd lost my own earthly father. I, as a father, had put my son into care, which I never envisaged or imagined that I'd ever have to do. And I went to America just for some space, just to connect with God again. And as soon as I got there, um, the, the first event we went to, they introduced this song. It's a song that we've sung here, and we're going to sing it again in a moment, called He is Jealous for Me. And when I first heard the song, I really hated it. Some of you probably hate it anyway, that's fine. I really hated it because it's very, very slushy words, very girly, very intimate. Do you know what I mean? And, and, I, and also, it's because it kept talking about the depth and the passion of the Father's love for me. And I just couldn't engage with it. But the weird thing was, wherever I went, they sang that jolly song. <laughs> Honestly, it was ridiculous. So I went to Texas. I'm at a worship conference. The guy who wrote the song is there. He introduces the song. He tells us about the background to it, which is brilliant. I think, that's great. Don't like the song. I then flew to Atlanta. The guy comes to the conference at Atlanta <laughs> and sings the jolly song again. I go to another church. They sing the song. Honestly, it was ridiculous. Then towards the end of my time there, I'm at this conference in Atlanta, 13,500 other leaders in this big arena stadium, and we're singing this song. And actually, it was just with this guy on an acoustic guitar with 13,500 people. And it was like God the Father hit my heart. And I just put my hands in the air, and I bawled like a baby. And I stood there realizing, yes, I've lost my dad. Yes, I put my kid in care. Yes, there's lots of challenges at church, but with all of that, God still loves me. The Father loves me. And that song came alive for me, not because it's a great song, but it is, but because of the experience that I'd had. Truth encounter is not enough. We need a power encounter. Now, I can't say to you that you'll all get that when you sing that song like I did. That's not what this is about. But I do believe worship is vitally important for us to engage with the Father's embrace. So can we stand?